Welcome back to QAV528. I'm back in Brisbane and happy to be here. You are still on the ark, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Floating somewhat submerged on the ark. It's just, I can't believe it. This weather in Sydney is crazy. We had probably four nice days over the weekend and it's back into underwater world again. Was that enough to squeeze in a little bit of golf? It was, yeah. I checked the forecast on Sunday night and Monday was the only dry day for the foreseeable future. So I uh, rearranged things and jumped on the course. That's good. Was it soggy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty muddy. But still better than nothing. It's good. So I actually played Friday and Monday this last uh, week because Friday was good too. Rained all week last week until Friday. Just fitting it in when I can. That's good. And um, I guess in after hours we'll talk about the Open and... uh... Boy from Brisbane, I think, wasn't he? Boy from Queensland, anyway. Yeah, from Brisbane, yep, north side. We were coming home from Kung Fu before and I saw, you know, some golf stores out near there, big signs saying, congratulations, Cam. I was like, thank you very much. I appreciate that. (laughs) My first Kung Fu class in a month and I survived. (laughs) It must have been, like, I'm just trying to think, was it Cameron Diaz who was around when you guys all were born? Everyone's called Cameron from uh, 50 years ago. They're all named after me. They're all named after me. Ah, right. I'm the original. Especially in Brisbane. These are all your (laughs) ex-girlfriends. Having (laughs) kids. kids. (laughs) Last thing my ex-girlfriends are going to do is name them after me, I tell you. (laughs) All right, let's get into the show, TK. I think it's going to be a quick one this week. We don't have a lot, lot, not a lot of questions, not a lot to talk about, although I did look at the portfolio, the DP, this morning which uh, stands for Dummy Portfolio and not the other DP, in case anyone was wondering. It's not doing great for the financial year. We're, uh, I think we're up 0.79% for the financial year, two weeks in, whatever it is, versus the ASX 200, which is up 5 point something percent. I can't see here on my thing. It's too small, but oh, there we go, 5.84%. So uh, the ASX 200 is kicking our butts in the first couple of weeks of the financial year. We've had a couple of good winners. NHC up 14% this financial year. AMO up 13 and ECX up 13 So they've had a good couple of weeks. Hang on, I'm getting different numbers to you. Oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Dummy portfolio, 1st of July to, yeah, well, it goes on to 30th of June 2023. I'm getting... We're up 5.35, market's up one. Oh, no, we're up 1.32, market's up 5.35. I did this this morning, so it must have, we must have gone up a little bit since this morning. Yeah, okay, but you're right, we're underperforming the market, yeah. From inception, though, which for new players is the 2nd of September 2019 for our dummy portfolio, we're up 16.4% per annum, CAGR, and the ASX 200 is up 508 per annum over the same period of time. So we're doing about three times. Now, I think last week or the week before when I looked, we were doing five times better than the ASX 200 since inception. So it's caught up a little bit in the last couple of weeks. But it reminds me what you've always said, that you know we're going to have years where we outperform and years when we underperform and years when we're at the same level as the uh, benchmark, the index. No system outperforms constantly, and it reminds me of a section from James O'Shaughnessy's book, To Be Sure, To Be Sure, What Works on, <laughs> what works on Wall Street. <laughs> to Be Sure, which I dug out and had a look at it again this morning. He wrote, 
Finding exploitable investment opportunities does not mean it's easy to make money, however. To do so requires an ability to consistently, patiently and slavishly stick with a strategy, even when it's performing poorly relative to other methods. Few are capable of such action. Structured investing is a hybrid of active and passive management that automates buy and sell decisions. If a stock meets the criteria, it's bought. If not, not. No personal emotional judgments enter the process. Disciplined implementation of active strategies is the key to performance. Traditional managers usually follow a hit and miss approach to investing. Their lack of discipline accounts for their inability to beat simple approaches that never vary from their methods. Don't second guess, don't change your mind, don't reject an individual stock, even if it's Apollo Tourism and Leisure, <laughs> if it meets the criteria of your strategy. Sean <laughs> say he was also an investor, was he? <laughs> if it meets the criteria of your strategy because you think it will do poorly, don't try to outsmart. So I think that's as good an encapsulation of what we do as any over it. Correct. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're not subject to the same, we are subject to pressures, but not the same ones as fund managers who have to make their quarterly numbers, but, um, and therefore do second guess themselves and try and manipulate things. But uh, we don't need to do that. You said before that there'll be times we underperform. I just wanted to clarify that's, that's in the short term. Over the long term, we still expect to get double market. Yeah, but there will be quarters, halves, years where we, we underperform. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I feel bad for people that started their investing careers in the last three or four months since the major correction. It must be demoralizing a little bit for them. But here, as I reminded somebody yesterday in an email, when you sell something... <laughs> This person emailed me and said, you know, I've, I've ruled one a bunch of stocks and uh, then I go back and look and they're up 25% from where I sold. I was like, well, that's rule number 1.5 is uh, <laughs> don't go back and check your rule number yeah. ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can always buy them back if they're back on the buy list and they're you know, back above sentiment. It's no, you can't because it's asset washing. <laughs> if you... Oh, so- well, if they sold them before June 30, yeah. So just let me ask you about that. And, and we did have a bit of an email thread the other day. So I assume that when I'm, you know, doing our portfolio stuff, the things that are at risk of asset washing are those that we sold, what, in June or in the last couple of weeks of June? Or how close to the end of financial year is it? Because there's been a couple that we sold in May and I've bought them back now. I've gone, well, you know, that should be okay, but I don't know where the line is. What do you think the line is? There is no line. That's the problem. The tax office is, there's no law around asset washing except for the famous or infamous part 4A of the tax act, which which says you cannot do something with the sole intention of avoiding tax. It's like that Supreme Court justice in the US said about pornography many years ago. I know it when I see it. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. That's quite a smart law, really. If you go into a lawyer's office, a tax lawyer's office, the whole at least one wall is covered with <laughs> tax legislation. And yeah, I think it was in the Howard years, they worked out, yeah, let's short circuit all this to just have part 4A. You cannot do something to avoid tax. So it's how the ATO applies that and what stands up in court and all those kinds of things. But it's generally, and, and please people, get your own advice. This is not advice. The rules I use are if you sell in June, wait until the next numbers come out 
before you rebuy because you can point to the tax office and say, hey, new figures, it's a new decision. I can make a constructive case to say I'm rebuying on the basis of my investment policy. And so the tax office would find it hard to say, okay, you sold in June and bought back in September just for the purpose of avoiding tax. But whether it's June or whether it's May, June, I mean, all those things are just great. So I've always used June but um, and avoided July and August before I rebought. Well, sorry, July anyway. August, we'll start getting new numbers out. So sometime in August, we can start to rebuy. Well, that's a shame because it you know, knocks a bunch of things off our list. It does, I agree. But also, too, I'm sure if you had a good tax lawyer, they could say, well, you know, you're following your strategy. It was never your intention to just make that sale for tax reasons. Here's the reasons why you sold it. So you probably get off. But the advice I got a long time ago for an accountant was don't do anything which is going to put you under the magnifying glass with the ATO because even if you win, you'll lose because it'll, it'll cost a lot to do audits. They'll keep checking you every year and you'll have to spend money with accountants, you know, preparing special returns and all that kind of stuff. So it's not worth it. Yes, well, that's the way it is with our portfolio uh, so far. It doesn't look very exciting, but, you know, these are the, the dark times. It is. And the other point too is like I know what you said before about people who started investing in the last, say, six months. It's definitely hard for them, but it also hasn't been easy for us. Our portfolio performance is down from 21% down to, what did you say before, 16%? Yeah, but we're still above water. People who started in the last few months probably have lost money because they've had to pay brokerage and they've lost 10% and all that kind of stuff. I know what you're saying, but if you if you think about it, we've lost money as well. The portfolio's down, so it's still our money, even and we've given some back for somebody else. So it's I guess I'm just saying that it's not just the people who are new to the market who are probably having second thoughts about all this. It's the people who've seen their portfolios drop as well. But again, this is just the way the market works. It's it's one step back two steps forward. Well, I think the advantage that I know I feel because I've been doing this now with you for three years is that it doesn't really phase me at all. I, I mean, I know it's come back. I know it will probably come back further until it turns around, but then it'll turn around. It'll go back up and we'll make it all back and then it'll come back a little bit. And so it's, I've been around long enough that it doesn't stress me out. I know you've probably lost, you've seen millions of dollars fly out the window. <laughs> but, you know, easy come, easy go. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not, I wouldn't say easy come, but, yeah, it was easy go the last six months, that's for sure. <laughs> Half right then. Yeah. But you know, I know you know that it'll, it'll come back, you know. Correct. Once you've been around for a while, it, you don't stress over these things. You just know it's part of the, part of the cycle, right? Yeah, and we're going to cash at the right time too. I think we had to redeploy that at the right time. And just on that too, I, I noticed uh, people should well, people should be checking the commodities at least probably weekly at the moment because Australian dollar gold dropped just below its three point sell line on the weekend. I checked it again today and it's right on it. So I might just watch it for a couple of days before I sell my gold stocks because it's trending along the bottom of of the trading range and it may rebound from here. But I'm pretty close to selling. My gold stocks, iron ore is getting close because of all the problems in China. So I think it's about 5 or $6 a tonne above its sell price. So we may have another round of selling coming up as well. Well, rules is rules. That's what you say to the ATO. If they pull you up for asset washing, you say rules is rules. And then they put you on the shit list. <laughs> 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 
every year it costs you fifty thousand dollars to hire a tax lawyer to argue your case. Now, oh. yeah, is Elon out to destroy Twitter, Tony? I think he might be. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, he's he's playing some strange games, and I I don't really know much about Musk or Tesla or Twitter or any of those sort of the stocks, but just sort of from afar, looking at what he's doing, he, he makes a generous offer to buy them out. Then he's tried to walk it back. Then he starts to point out all the problems with Twitter, like bots and all that kind of stuff. And now he, he determinedly walks away from the uh, the sale when the market's crashed. So like there's no other buyer for Twitter. They're scrambling to try now and enforce the original deal, which will be hard for them to do because right, it's hard to put a gun to a head when someone's walked away. Yeah, so he's, he's pretty much just watched the value in Twitter decline dramatically and pointed out all the problems with his business model and spend a little bit of money, but not much to do it. Yeah, I've had a look at their share price and it's um, sort of been going up since he tried to pull out, which is interesting. I mean, if you go back a year ago, they were trading at 71 bucks US a share. They're currently trading about 38. So they've halved in valuation, but you know they were down as low as 34 in March. And then I think when he talked about buying it, it uh, shot back up to 50 bucks, and then came back down and now is, uh, seems to have been bounding back. It did, it did drop a bit after his announcement, so maybe it's just recovering from that. But yeah, funny, Elon, like I, I do feel that he just trolls people from time to time. Like with the Bitcoin and the crypto stuff, and the GameStop and all that kind of uh, nonsense that was going on a year or so ago. He did seem to just drop little tweets from now, every now and again, just to troll people and get them all excited. And then he'd like say something negative about it a couple of weeks later and it'd crash. And then he'd say something positive and it'd go back up. And he'd just like, he's just the puppet master out there, which is um, maybe fun for him, not very nice for the people that are getting sucked in and buying and selling and losing money along the way, though. There's a, there's collateral damage to him uh, trolling if that is, in fact, what he's doing. No, I agree. But interesting to watch. And, you know, you wonder how, how it's all going to wind up for Tesla as well. I mean, do you put Tesla in the afterpay camp? Is it always going to be a hype to business, but when it becomes mature, it's not going to have any profit? Or do you put it in the Amazon camp, which is going to be around for a long time? Look, I don't know, but I told you the, this uh, six months ago when I talked to my old mate Robert Scoble the tech uh, evangelist, blogger, Twitter, podcaster, whatever he is these days over there, who's, uh, you know, very close to all of these sorts of things and going on. He reckons Tesla's not a car play. It's a data play because all of the cars are driving around, grabbing all of the data. They've got cameras on them. They're capturing everything that's happening on the streets everyone's utilisation of it, what's going on, feeding all that back to massive data centres, uh, super cool data centres under the ocean somewhere. He said, no, people, people don't understand Tesla. The long-term play is it's a data aggregation play and he's going to do stuff with all of the data. So who knows? It's like Westworld. They build a theme park to gather information about the human psyche. Okay. Was it just a big blackmail play in Westworld? They were just blackmailing all the rich people who went there to rape uh, computer bots? Well, they were, but, but it's the twists and turns and now there's some tech billionaire who's worked out that there's all the data about the human mind that he can recreate the human mind from it. So he's um, going after the pearl, it's called. 
Why would you want to recreate the human mind? Human mind's yeah. horrible. Go, go build a better mind. You don't want to recreate ours. Oh, I think he's trying to recreate it so he can, you know, manipulate stock markets and that kind of thing, make money off it. Oh, okay. Well, that's cunning, yeah. We should do that. What, build Westworld? Yeah. <laughs> you can afford it. Just build Westworld. Yeah, okay. QAV world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Come and hunt growth investing bots in QAV world. <laughs> anyway, so that's oh, that's Tesla. Who knows? I mean, so if it's going to be a data play, why don't they call it a data play? It's, that's just classic bait and switch evangelist stuff from the dot com era. Oh, it's not really about selling books. It's about <laughs> eyeballs. <laughs> We're going to control the world. Oh, okay. Jeff Bezos uh, pulled it off, man. Yeah, but he's the only one. And Google pulled it off too. I mean, it wasn't really about search, though. No, it was about data. It's about ads. <laughs> well, even the ads. Ads was just a way of funding, and I think it's about data. Anyway, keep going. No, I was going to say, so enough about the growth stocks. The one good bit of news in the, all the downturns recently is, is Michael Hill Jewel is one of our buy-list stocks, and, and uh, it's been there for a while, had strong quarterly sales. Uh, and so did JB Hi-Fi, actually, so that came out today which is the, what are we, 19th of July, 2022. So two retailers have had some good numbers and uh, they've both been on our buy list. Uh, they've both gone up a little bit and uh, it's kind of surprising. And that's just what happens in the stock market. People wrote off retailers after COVID and I guess maybe that's the reason they're having good sales is because the analysts wrote off the retailers after COVID saying everyone was staying at home buying things online, which was great for retail. Now COVID's gone. They're not going to do that. Well, has COVID really gone is the, is the first question. And secondly, probably oversold the stocks on that theory. And now they're actually saying, no, our retail stores are going well. And we now have large online businesses we didn't have before too, which is still going well. So analysts got it wrong and the stocks are rebounding. MHJ was a good one for me last year. I think it was one of those ones that we made like, I don't know, 50, 60% on in a year during COVID. So. Nice to see that it's back. I don't know who's buying jewellery, though, at the moment. What's, what's driving that? I haven't delved into their numbers, but I know they're expanding. So I, I think they're, they've just opened a network of stores in Canada in the last uh, year or two. Oh, okay. We should get Kane on. Kane can come on and tell us what's going on with the jewellery business. Yeah. Well, there you go, MHJ. I don't own it anymore. Do you? Uh, it's probably too small. Is it too small for you? Too small, yeah. I have owned it in the past, many years ago, but um, too small for me now. Well, uh, any other news? Are you, you going to do a pulled pork for us today? Yeah, so uh, I'll do a pulled pork on a small company called Ambertech. And just a shout out to people, if you have a company you want me to do a pulled pork on, let us know. Uh, I'm just going to work down the list, but it's, I'm getting towards the bottom of the list now because either A, they're all Josephines, or B, we've done them before. But this one is um, just one we haven't, uh, as far as I can recall. Ambertech, A-M-O is the stock code. and I don't know much about this company except for what I've done for research today, but it's a, an importer and distributor of film and TV equipment and um, in particular home projectors for home theatres. So a small company though, it's a 32 million market cap, which makes it a micro stock, and its ADT is just under $19,000. So it won't suit everyone, but uh, there's some small investors out there it uh, might be worth having a look at. The chart looks good. If people want to have a look at the chart, they'll see it's uh, it was it's turned down over the last twelve months, but it's had a very solid upturn 
in the last little while. So uh, something's going right with the company. This analysis is based on a share price of 34 and a half cents. And I guess the first thing to notice is it's paying nearly a 9% yield, which is quite juicy. It's like quite high. Its financial health and stock doctor is strong and steady. Its uh, price to operating cash flow is getting up there. It's currently 6.63 times. A stock doctor has it as 5.6. And generally when stock doctor disagrees with the numbers I calculate in our spreadsheet, it's because there are options which haven't been exercised yet um, in the main anyway out there, which wouldn't surprise me. Small company with um, owner founders, they probably do have lots of options out there. So stock doctor takes those into account in working out its prop calf and, and I don't. I just use the shares which are, um, have been issued already. So that's uh, something that um, will be a feature of these kinds of companies. It doesn't really make much difference to me, I don't think. Uh, and it actually scores well for us because we do have owner founders out there with skin in the game. So that's, that's a good thing, I think, overall. No analysts are covering the stock, so we don't have consensus forecasts. And that's because it's a small market cap, you'd expect that. And therefore, we don't have IV2 or we don't have growth over PE to score these two things on. But uh, I often find that um, these small caps, which aren't covered by the analysts, give us the advantage. So we, we do have a slightly diminished set of uh, numbers to, to crunch, but uh, we're the only ones crunching them. So we can uncover some real, uh, some real good growth stories here. Going through the manually entered data, it's not the lowest PE. So uh, it has been on a bit of an upturn recently, so not the lowest PE, but uh, its its upturn is since the last financial results, so it's a recent upturn. It scores well for that. Equity has been consistently increasing, so it scores well for that. And it has owner founders, which I said, so it scores well for that. So all in all, we can score uh, 12 metrics, and this scores 11 out of 12, which is 92% for quality, which is really nice, but only 0.14 for QAV, so it's towards the bottom of our list, and that's because of the operating cash flow or price to operating cash flow getting up towards seven. So do you uh, often see a correlation between a high yield and high board ownership? Is that them paying themselves uh, a dividend? Yeah, quite possibly. Not always. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is a classic one where they don't like dividends. They'd rather reinvest the, the money. But yeah, you're probably right. They're probably having to serve and service loans and things like that that they put money into the company with. So I don't know this company very well, but that's, that's potentially what's going on. I just as soon as you said it was a 9% yield, I immediately thought tightly held. <laughs> I mean, I know there are, there are some companies that always pay a, you know, a reasonable dividend that aren't tightly held, but that, something that high, there's got to be a reason why they're giving that much money back to shareholders. Yeah, quite possibly. There could be multiple reasons, of course, but yeah. Okay, interesting. Thank you for that. AMO. Yes. All right. Is it time to get into uh, Q&A, the little that we have? Yeah. First one is from uh, Steve. This was a week or so ago, I think, from uh, Chairman Mao, Mab, sorry, the other chairman, Chairman Mab. He says, I see MQG is back on the buy list this week. One of the tools Lee and I have been playing around with is to take a 10-year view of the overall business performance of a stock and look for those that are consistently growing and reaching higher performance than the market overall, a bit like taking all the bad apples out, etc., to then only own the best apples. Of course, valuation would be important as always when you enter this kind of stock. But anyway, below is what MQG looks like. Really good growth on most metrics over a decade. However, cash flow seems to be super lumpy and has skyrocketed in the past year. Any insights on why? And is that a concern for the QAV system? 
And the the um, below, this is what MQG looks like. He's got a table here going over 10 years, revenue growth, net profit growth, return on equity, earnings per share, operating cash per share, dividends per share, book value per share, and share price, which, by the way, has gone from $28 in FY12 to $182 in FY22. It's been on a stellar 10-year run, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think one of the things you don't see in that is um, volatility. So you can see it a little bit in one of the years it went from 78 back to 67 the next year and then 87 the year after. But that is one of the issues with a company like Macquarie Group. It can be quite volatile. But overall, it's been one of Australia's success stories. It really has. It's uh, When I was first starting to invest, Macquarie Bank was just getting going and uh seemed to me to have all the best research to retail retail investors. And there wasn't much out there back in the um, the 90s, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And it's just grown and grown and grown. And it's been well managed. It's been a great investor of capital. And now the retail bank's only a, a minor part of the whole company. So, but the reason, to get back to Steve's point, the reason why the cash flow is high for the last half or the last year is uh, Macquarie Group, it's more like an investment bank than a retail bank. And so it has lumpy cash flow. So in the last uh, little while, they made a lot of money out of commodity trading along the same trades that we did. When oil got down to $28 a barrel, they loaded up and then sold it um, or used futures or whatever they did. Sold it when it started to rise and they made a squillion dollars, which is straight cash profit coming in. And that's only one of their investment arms. There are all sorts of businesses that can generate that kind of windfall profits for them. They, they do smooth it because they are having a greater share of the company invested in infrastructure. And I think that's, again, good management on their part. They've said, you know, over the years, we've, as an investment bank, we've had lumpy cash and lumpy profits. Let's try and smooth it. And so they invest in infrastructure, which is more regulated and more certain in terms of uh, its, its payments each year, like toll roads and bridges and electricity generation and things like that so or at least the infrastructure for it so um yes it can be lumpy they do try and smooth it but uh i guess in terms of qav i, I don't mind that sometimes they come on the buy list and sometimes they go off the buy list if they haven't had a, a big windfall profit for a year they go off the buy list because i know when they come on they invest the cash wisely they've got a track record as, as Stephen lee's uh, analysis shows that uh you know they've uh, the book value per share has gone from $34 to $77. So it's doubled in that last um, period of you know, 10 years of analysis. So, yeah, they do, they do invest wisely. So it won't always be on our buy list, but it, when it does, it's good. Again, the, the pros and cons of, of Macquarie Bank, and it's just come back onto our buy list recently, the pros are that um, for all the things I've just said, they've been a great manager of capital, they're, they're an investment bank, they do good deals, and it's known as the millionaires factory. So their business model is used to be a little bit unplanned. And if someone goes to them and pitches them an idea like, hey, invest in my business, they'll invest in, in it with you. And they've made lots of people millionaires doing that. And then that becomes part of Macquarie Bank going forward or Macquarie Group going forward. So they're good at that. The other real big positive for them is that they earn a lot of income, probably the majority of their income overseas. And when the Australian dollar is as low as it is now, that's you know pretty much a 30% tailwind to their profit compared to the local banks who are all um, their profits in Australian dollars. 
So that's a free kick for them at the moment. If the Australian dollar rises, that will turn against them. But the negative is definitely around uh, their leverage to the economic cycle. So if Australia does go into a recession, or if the, more importantly for them, I guess if America goes into recession or Europe, then uh, they will come off dramatically. And I remember during the GFC, it was good and bad. They their share price was very volatile. It sort of I forget the exact numbers, but it kind of went down by two thirds when the GFC hit. But then coming out, it went up three times. So that's the kind of volatility you can experience with this kind of stock. Yeah, I'm looking now. GFC. No, oh, that doesn't go back. My chart only goes back to 2010, so I can't uh, can't tell you. So what do you think about this uh, 10-year view that Stephen Lee are uh, having a look at? Yeah, like I said, sounds good. I mean, the first question is why 10 years and not five or not 20? But yeah, if it only has companies like, I mean, I, I think you can, I can probably put the list together now. It'll be Macquarie Bank, it'll be CSL. It might be the major banks, at least ComBank of the majors. Yeah, the supermarkets will probably be in there. So it's pretty much going to be the ASX 20. So that's oftentimes how companies get to be on the ASX 20, right? They start off small and they consistently grow. So it's a bit of hindsight bias. And I think we should buy Macquarie at the moment. Not a recommendation, but um, it's on our buy list and it's a good company. So it's, it's well-valued for us to buy, whereas some of the other things on the ASX 20 aren't at the moment. But yeah, I, I'd be interested to see what their list comes out as. I think it'll probably be a large cap list. The interesting thing will be is if they find someone who's not a large cap, that's probably the, the company to invest in because it, with this kind of tailwind behind it, this kind of you know, good stewardship, good management over 10 years so that their book value in particular has been growing, which is a bit like our consistently increasing equity. And I think that's a really important part of our, our metrics that we look at. Yeah, if there's companies out there, which have, A, have been around 10 years and B, haven't grown to the extent that they're such the, an extent that they are on everyone's radar, then that would be a good one to get into. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Just sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to uh, you know, learn how to do QAV for yourself. Think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. Um, it's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, uh, you know, while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. That's it. Um, if you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. 
All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.